Welcome to Campfire Conversations, coming to you from the shores of Lake Michigan in beautiful Arcadia, Michigan, with your host, Ryan Tonetti, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church here in Arcadia, Michigan, and co-host, Chit May, executive director of Camp Arcadia. We get together to have the kind of conversations you have around the campfire with friends. It is so easy in our busy lives to forget what really matters, the campfire. The campfire is a place where we make space to talk about things that count and to remember that we've been made for more. So grab a seat and join us around the campfire. Greetings, it's Ryan Tonetti, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church here in beautiful Arcadia, joined as always by my host, co-host, friend Chip May, executive director of Camp Arcadia. What's happening, Chip? It is a pleasure to be gathered around the fire with you, Ryan. Yes, indeed. These embers are glowing today, I might say. It's redolent of early fall, late summer mm -hmm. in Arcadia. It is. Good times. Um, we're also joined by our special guest co-host, Chad Bird. Chad, good to have you around the campfire. Good to be here. And our special guest for today's conversation is aren't, the... Aren't, wait, aren't all of our guests special? This one in particular is special, because he's here right now. Because I'm not supposed to be here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. He, but he is the director of podcasts for 1517. His name is Caleb Keith. Caleb, glad to have you. I am very glad to, uh, to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. Now, you have uh, three first names. I do have three first <laughs> names, yeah. It's a, pro it's a problem. What's your middle name? Emerson. Emerson. So it's Caleb Emerson Keith. That's the Keith. closest to a last name, point. I'm going to say. Like, he almost could. Yeah, it's, in, it's, in, it's in, the longest, the most complex, so, yeah. <laughs> so in California, they put the last name first, people are often... On the driver's name. license, it's yeah. uh, Keith on its own line first, and then Caleb Emerson. And so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's like, I'll get to a hotel and it'll say Keith Emerson on it. <laughs> and, um, so my name's nowhere on it. <laughs> and it's, like, it's, uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. So, <laughs> so now... Caleb, you are 28 years old. I'm 28, yep. <laughs> you don't even look like you're 28. I, I probably look say. 22. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the mustache is the like must adding three years, too, so I'm really looking like 18. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, uh, turns out you're pretty smart. I, I like to think so. Like to think <laughs> so. Yeah, that's the first problem, yeah. <laughs> is the arrogance. Now, um, your, your topic this week has been about apologetics, which is a, a, you know, a church word about uh, defending the faith, right? About right. being a, an answer for your hope, right? Tell us, uh, can you, uh, uh, you, you've done a great job of kind of unpacking the, what that means for our church history and then kind of like where you are, where you and 1517 are sort of taking it now. So take us through that in like, Ten words or less. <laughs> Ten words it took or you less. forty-five minutes the other day. Can you do it? No, I'm joking. Just <laughs> oh man, you you scared me for a second. There. <laughs> I, that was like going to take a minute. Uh, the longest ten words you've ever heard. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm doing apologetics because I really am not supposed to be here. Adam Francisco, who is sort of the apologetics guy at mm. fifteen seventeen, uh, at least on staff. Um, from the fellowship was supposed to be talking here. He had a bit of a medical emergency. He's mm. okay. He's doing okay now. But I came and uh, did some apologetics in his stead. We can start by just defining apologetics. Probably, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's easy to assume most people know what it is. But as you said, Chip, it's the the idea is that's the defense of the Christian faith. The word apology. Is not uh, saying you're sorry in this case, but is uh, a defense. Comes from a Greek word, apologia, which 
has some courtroom sort of implications or the idea that you're being you're being put on trial for something and you would defend or argue for uh, the thing that you're being on, put on trial for. And so uh, it's found in Scripture, but uh, the, the commonplace we talk about it from there is 1 Peter 3.15, which is uh, be prepared to have a defense for the hope that is within you and yet do it with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm is sort of that verse uh, occurs in a section of First Peter 3 that is about Christians suffering uh, hmm. in the world and, and Christians being uh, position, in a place of opposition against them because of their nature in Christ and their life in Christ and how you should be ready to respond to that with the reason for the hope that is in you. And so there's a whole discipline of Christian theology that is surrounded by this now called apologetics, which has been identified in various forms from the apostles and the early church all the way to uh, today and has sort of evolved in that time. So can you situate apologetics among other kinds of speaking the faith that we do, whether it be you know, proclamation, um, whether it be evangelism or, or witness, what have you. Um, how does apologetics um, exist alongside those other forms of Christians speaking about the faith? Yeah, that's great. Uh, classically, apologetics is conceived of in the evangelism realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially modern apologetics is primarily concerned with addressing the objections of non-believers or people who have left the faith. And so it is part of our uh, efforts in evangelism as we go out and speak to non-Christians. In the context of 1 Peter 3.15, the being prepared really is a command to Christians to have a concrete reason for the hope that is within them. I said during one of my lectures that it's sort of like when you go to court, you're not there to evangelize the jury. Uh, you are there to survive the encounter. Hmm. And that means convincing the jury of your innocence, but you're convincing them not so that they join you in whatever sort of life you live, but uh, so that you survive uh, that encounter. And so I think there is a, a big chunk of First Peter 3.15 that is about defending uh, Christians and their belief and helping equip them to survive uh you know, ag- aggressive or objectionable encounters with uh, unbelievers or people who, uh, you know, have amnesty towards the faith. Um, and so for that reason, I also think it could be positioned in catechesis or teaching in the mm-hmm. Christian life. Mm-hmm. And then uh, apologetics, sort of as we understand evangelism is not just works out to the world, uh, needs to be something that we have uh, aiming towards proclamation. Sure. Uh, because apologetics, uh, having a reason or giving a defense of yourself or your positions is not handing over the faith per se mm-hmm. to somebody else. And so I think we have to keep in mind with apologetics, too, that it needs to be paired with the proclamation of the gospel, which brings faith, hope, salvation. Yeah. So it's it's, it's an appetizer in, in some respects. It's kind of um, cleansing the palate, yeah. getting it ready for the the feast that is to come. Yeah, I tried to, I think, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really matter, but I tried to, when I was writing my outline for this week, name this uh, apologetics as hearing and preaching. Hmm. Um, so uh, trying to turn more of the 
the arguments about apologetics or the sort of the facts about apologetics into a hearing exercise mm -hmm. for us that allow us to then orient our proclamation towards people. Mm. I think that's one of the the uh, most fascinating points that you made this week is that um, this maybe isn't the way that you phrased it, but the idea of hearing the question behind the question. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so someone asks uh, a question which seems to be one that you can answer apologetically, but what they're really wondering mm. is is something else. Maybe they're yeah. dealing with guilt. Maybe they're dealing with, with something else. And so, if you want to can explain more about what you were. The point yeah, you made there. I, I've tried to uh, tell people that you know a, an individual's life story is probably the real reason behind the intellectual objection they have for the faith. Right. And apologetics has for a long time focused on the singular intellectual objection that a person will bring up. The The good part about that is Christians trying to uh, have good faith conversations with people that respect their intelligence and concerns as legitimate. There, there's a good side there. The sort of what I would say potential negative aspect there is that uh, you ignore the person and you boil down a person to a single logical argument. And I think many apologists have found, especially if you look at apologetic debates are sort of the common way of hashing things out. You'll have a famous Christian and a famous sort of atheist get together and debate. Do either one ever walk away sort of believing the other thing? No. If, if the Christian defeats the atheist, he walks away and goes and tries to refine or rebuild his argument. And so I think we kind of have to ask the question, why does that person want to go rebuild their argument if they have one that is there? For whatever reason, whether it is because of the one logical set of beliefs they have or not, they actually want to be an unbeliever. Mm -hmm. And there's probably something in, the, in sort of the story of their life uh, as a whole that is getting them there. And often the case with both people we know and love and famous sort of atheists or non-Christian debaters, there is a story uh, aspect, the death of a loved one, maltreatment by a pastor or priest, um, just or, or some general cruelty in the world or something like this, is the real reason, and then they have built up a defense of, mm -hmm. of that position around them. And so, too, I think... Uh, Christian apologetics is, is at the end of the day, partially about that as well, which is we have a real reason for the hope that is within us, that is the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins to us, and then we build up reasonable defenses around that so that when people make objections or try to make us not no longer believe that, try to attack our ears with that, there's something around us uh, sort of warding off those attacks. Hmm. And part of that, too, is the idea that to kind of get to what... <laughs> The question behind the question, or whatever personal experience might have led to the building of these walls, uh, you made the point that that requires suffering, long suffering mm -hmm. on the part of, uh, of believers, establishing a relationship mm -hmm. yeah. and and dealing with whatever it is they're dealing with, kind yeah. of entering into their suffering. To you have to be willing to want to hear, you know, that story uh, enough, have the time to sort of produce that. Uh, I've talked about sort of. You know, the 20-minute apologetic conversation is going to have a really difficult uh, time with that. Uh, that doesn't mean those don't need to happen. You might be able to sort of sow some sort of seed of doubt in somebody's argument, but there's not much you're going to be able to do there. Whereas when you have a relationship with somebody, you can sort of dig into it, even with people who we think we know. You know, if we have, uh, a, uh, let's say, a brother or a sister who's an unbeliever now, well, we think we kind of know the, the story of their life, but it's probably willing 
you know, for us, we probably don't, if we're still a believer, we probably have no idea why. Mm. And that's probably the, the perspective we come in is like, we were all raised in the same house. We all had the same experiences. Mm. How did he go astray? I don't yeah. understand. You need to sort of uh, probably, yeah, your goal would be to work and say, what's that piece of their life that happened when I wasn't there or, or that I was there and not seeing that um, made them start searching for reasons not to believe? Yeah. There's, go ahead. So um, when I think of apologetics, I think of like a, um, like two areas. One was like kind of I would describe as the late night conversations like with your friends and when you're in your teens or early 20s where you're like discussing the existence of God and, you know, and, you know, like how could things exist if nothing was ever before and you just you go into those, those rabbit holes of those deepest, you, you think they're deep, maybe yeah. they're deep, maybe they're not, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, you know, there's this God-shaped hole in all of us and everyone's neat and then, and then there's also like the evidentiary type of one where it's like, oh, the archaeological says this and, mm -hmm. and we have records of this and the the Bible uh, is, you know, we have more, you know, more records of the Bible than we do of Plato and therefore, you know, all that kind of stuff right there. And, and that's what most of my, my, ex my experience with apologetics has been yeah. is, is either like this big, deep thinking or this like evidentiary, like if I just learn more about the history, I'd be able to defend it to someone who is lambasting mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, tell me your thoughts on that and, 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 and how you're shaping the conversation a little bit differently. Yeah, uh, I mean, the the more organic sort of speculating with your friends about uh, God is, is definitely apologetic when you're trying to uh, get to an outcome. The limitation there is usually, though, I'd say oftentimes those are low-risk conversations, right. right, which is why they stay speculative. You're not going to start... Uh, preaching in that, or you might not get back invited to, you know, campfire under the stars, right. uh, <laughs> because uh, Chip was just a little too preachy uh, the last time we all got together, um, right? And so uh, there's definitely some limits there with evidentiary apologetics. That is of the sort of the modes of apologetics, um, my favorite for uh, one reason or another. One of it being that's that's how I was trained. I think it's the most organically Lutheran. Uh, sort of way of doing apologetics too. It's been handed down to me through John Warwick Montgomery and Rod Rosenblatt and my father and Adam Francisco. Um, Why does Montgomery get three names? I'm just wondering. Is he either a country singer or <laughs> future assassin? Yeah, future assassin. Like, I, mean, I, I it, think if you have like six, I think if you have six PhDs, I think you just <laughs> you just like, right. get, it's an honorary name. That or your whole name is just letters. You can you know, have any names like, you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can just like you know. I don't know. It's I. I've just, that's how his name's always been presented. Like, I always, because I refer to him at times in conversations, and I sometimes like, am I saying the country singer? Yeah. Is it? Like John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> yeah. talking about. But, uh, so the work is his, <laughs> exactly. is his cougar. That's his cougar. But we'll come back in 30 years <laughs> and have another interview with Caleb Emerson Keith. So. Yeah. C.E. Keith. C.E. Keith, yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, yeah, so an evidentiary apologetics for for people who may not be familiar, is sort of uh, the idea that you look particularly at the historical evidence for the death and resurrection of Christ. That tends to center around document evidence. So as you were saying, Chip, um, a comparison to the, 
the reliability and the historicity of the New Testament documents, particularly the four Gospels uh, and their depiction of Christ. And oftentimes, because it's sort of establishing reliability, you'll use uh, tactics like uh, taking somebody else's dependence on other historical, quote-unquote, facts of uh, the ancient world. So some, you know, you run into somebody who doesn't believe uh, the the account of the New Testament is so historical or reliable. Uh, they probably believe that Plato was a real person and that his works that are transmitted to us today are, are roughly what he said and, and things like that. And you can make a case that, yeah, the documents that we have for the New Testament are... Uh, the best out of the entire ancient world. And so if you have sort of any dependence or trust on ancient history at all, which most of us have at least a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, that's good. Uh, that can fall short when somebody really doesn't care about those other things, though. So <laughs> I, I would say one of the problems that can rise up is uh, because Plato or other ancient things are basically essentially teaching pure moral lessons, it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. it who Plato was. It doesn't really matter how old those documents were. It doesn't really matter how close at the time of writing, if the moral lessons still hold true in their right. essence. Mm -hmm. And so for scripture, uh, it does matter because we're talking about more than a moral lesson mm -hmm. here. We're talking about uh, life and salvation hinging on one particular historical event. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it would... Uh, it would be more like something more and probably that would affect people in modern history saying, you know, the founding in that night, you, the United States, for instance, could be a good example, is dependent on a series of historical events. If uh, those events didn't occur, then how did we all get here in a place called mm -hmm. the United States is sort of uh, the big question. And so, um, and so you can start sort of even comparing our transmission of those mm -hmm. sort of things to the scripture um, but it can only get so far. There's sort of a, Montgomery uses a reasonable doubt sort of thing here. Is that beyond a reasonable doubt, these are reliable. Um, and what are they reliable about? Well, they're reliable particularly about the testimony of Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. And if, in fact, that resurrection happened, uh, then we have to look at what he said about that, which was he claimed that he was God claimed that that resurrection was directly tied to that fact that he was God. He claimed that that resurrection was for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that's something you can't prove in history, but have to take from the words of Christ. Like even if you could prove a resurrection happened on its own, it doesn't prove that it forgave your sins. So right. there's certain parts of this kit that can't be proven, um, but can, but come from establishing who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. And if he's God, then the things he says are true. Yeah. Uh, and so there is some, even with the evidentiary apologetic, uh, I think one of the reasons it tends to be helpful is it turns theological faster. It has a dependence on the question of who Christ is and what he preached and who he preached it to mm -hmm. um, and uh, definitely relies on people's uh, sort of sense uh, of the world. One of the big shortcomings today of it, and it's not the apologetics fault, but the world we live in is... Um, People just don't really care that their worldview is represented in reality. Hmm. Sort of uh, postmodernism has sort of unlocked that the world is kind of what I make it or perceive it, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and truth is sort of about experience more than it is about uh, critical methodology hmm. and, and all of us sharing the exact same truths 
all of the time uh, for common ground. And so that that's a, um, an uphill battle because sometimes to do an evidentiary apologetic, you first have to convince somebody that this is the way they approach the world, whether they like it or not. Right. Um, you know, you got to tell them that if they think their car is going to start in the morning, that's yeah. using basically the same type of logical principles. If, if they think getting on an airplane is safe, that's the same type of uh, reporting. You, you get that from a source of authority. How do I know that the authorities that say I'm going to not die on this plane are trustworthy, etc.? So, um, but that is a lot of groundwork to get to cry. The more and more of those steps, it's, right. a, it's a lot of groundwork. So that's sort of the uphill battle for apologetics today. Yeah, well, just the uphill battle for anybody trying to live in reality. If there's folks who are saying, I just don't really care what's real whatsoever. Yeah. Um, it makes me think G.K. Chesterton says, says somewhere that to the man who wants nothing, I can give you nothing. You know, yeah. <laughs> like if, if that's what people really want, yeah. you get to a point where you just kind of have to shake, shake the dust off as it were. But, yeah. um, okay. So this, we have this uphill battle with, um, especially that evidentiary apologetic. So how, what, what is proving to be the most or more effective, um, apologetic, apologetic tact in this postmodern kind of milieu. Yeah, that's interesting. There are like five easy steps <laughs> yeah. to converting your atheist neighbor. <laughs> who, do, who doesn't believe that? Yeah, uh, I don't neighbor. I don't know. I don't have any data sort of on this and it it seems to be the uh, the open question, right? Right now um, that everybody's struggling with when people who are uh, have a mind or have been doing apologetics get together. This is a question you kind of hear is mm. A lot of debating on what would be effective uh, to postmodernism. Um, I, I would say a lot of people sort of just lament our education system mm-hmm. in the West and just sort of uh, think that you know that that current group of people are going to be very difficult to work with. So we kind of need to we need to start redoing uh, Western education on the whole to sort of deal with. Um, em- empirical knowledge mm-hmm. again. So if we all were eating, the, if we all were reading the great books, mm-hmm. that's right. This this problem would go. Everybody we would, would be Christian. Common language to talk about this. Yeah. All right. Um, that's I, one one step. That's one step. <laughs> one more. Now. Yeah. Great books. Everybody. Um, I think some of it. Everybody. In, everybody. In my approach, I I tend to uh, the conversations I have, I focus on adopting the entirety of. Uh, the truth of Christianity at once, if that makes sense. And this tends to make people really uncomfortable because they begin to think you're suggesting that the truths of Christianity aren't important. So, um, you know, I was bringing up that I tend not to, if I can avoid it, argue about Genesis for lengths of time with somebody, that I would rather sort of try to get them to... uh, Ken Ham is not that. a uh, listener of our podcast. That's so good. Sure. <laughs> he is a sponsor, don't you? <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, a lot of people will will bring up the Genesis account, right? And um, I tend to to go, well, that's not the heart of the Christian faith. Mm. Um, that's you know, or it, Genesis isn't doing what you think it's doing. It's not an alternative scientific explanation for the beginning of the world. It's a declaration about, and a proclamation about the beginning of the world and your place in it in particular, but it's it's not a scientific outline about uh, the mechanisms which brought the the world as you experience it into being. And it's also not the main claims about Christianity. The, the primary claim is about 
that Christ died and rose for your sins. And so then I would try to say, do you reject, you know, do you reject that? Do you mm-hmm. reject the idea that Christ died and rose for your sins? And they're probably going to say yes. But now the conversation has mm-hmm. sort of uh, shifted back. And again, there's uh, there's just a lot of that. So I, I try to just redirect um, those. So you're not a slippery slope guy. No. If you do, if you if you can't sign on to all the parts of Genesis as an Orthodox Christian would believe in, then 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 you're already starting to slip down that slope, and, and next thing you know, you're denying the crucifixion. And I do think there's certain elements to that for somebody who then, I you know, like there's certain inconsistencies and things that can go out the door if once that person's a Christian. But I'm dealing with somebody who doesn't believe anything. Yet at this point. Well, and as Christians, I mean, I think we almost have a reverse slippery slope where it's like you start believing in Jesus and the next thing you know, you're going to think Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Like, the, you know, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Like you believe a man rose from the dead and yeah. who knows what you're going to believe next. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where we put our, our trust and our confidence. Yeah. It's like, let's start there and work backwards. That's it. That's exactly right. Chad said something during his presentation the other day, which is, uh, which is very true, which is, to sort of once you start uh, studying the New Testament, you kind of you need to know the stories of the Old Testament to understand everything that's happening there. There's so much non-cited reference. The uh, the you know the sort of in a paradox, the opposite is true as well. You need uh, Christ to understand the Old Testament. Chad, I think, wrote a book on this called mm. "The Christ Key." I did. Uh, I did. Yeah, it works both ways. It works sure. both ways. Sure. Uh, the, these things are very interconnected. Yeah. And if somebody's barrier is in the Old Testament, uh, I can temporarily, and I'll, I'll emphasize, I can temporarily set that to the side yeah. for a minute. Um, if somebody's barrier is in the moral teachings of the Apostle Paul, I can set that to the side for a minute, um, just just for a minute, um, to ask if they reject the primary claim of Christianity. And from there, that primary claim lays the foundations for all of those to be true as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't want people uh, to be hearing me that sort of belief in the Old Testament as Scripture is optional. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's optional at all. Um, for Christians, I just uh, don't think that before you get somebody to hear that Christ has died and risen for them, mm-hmm. that they need to uh, believe and understand all of the foundations of Christian Christian teaching, right? Uh, which then includes sort of the law, the Old Testament, and everything else in there. And um, well, the advantage of beginning the way that you are by focusing upon the work of Christ is that you do get around to preaching the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> so if your apologetic is that focused, if it's not beginning with the flood or creation or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. if you begin with that kind of stuff, you might never get around to preaching Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this way, you're going to you're going to preach Christ, and we'll see what the reaction is. You and, can go from there. You know, the explanation for something that seems like a moral travesty or blacklist on God's name with the flood is the his faithfulness to his promise to bring a messiah um and that nothing will stop him from pursuing that promise um to somebody who uh is outside of that promise that is horrible news they are a person who dies in the flood waters mm-hmm. then uh and so um and so they, they can't even understand how the pursuit of that promise is good goodness good mm-hmm. news until they've been a recipient of that good news. And same with the creation account. The creation account culminates very quickly in a fall and a promise of redemption. Um, and so 
it's uh, you know it's about the beginning of the universe, but it's actually about positioning you in the universe, telling you what your condition before God is, and now that He's coming for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when we talk about all those things in the abstract, we talk about creation account apart from my place in my predicament in creation, or you talk about these uh, stories which people don't think are possible, like Noah's Ark or Jonah or things like that, apart from God's pursuit of that promise, ten, it tends to make no sense. Um, even though you can argue for them from other positions, mm-hmm. it doesn't get somebody to be a Christian. M- Muslims will accept uh, those mm-hmm. Old Testament uh, stories as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's plenty of theists out there who don't have a particular God who believe that a divine creator is necessary for the origin of the universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the scientific arguments alone, apologetic arguments alone for the necessity of a creator are extremely strong mm-hmm. and are growing in popularity in the scientific community today, mm. which is positive. But that is not the same as trust in Christ for your salvation. Right. And so for the Christian apologist, that's not, um, that's not a win, as we would sure. Uh, as we would say. Um, and oftentimes we just think, well, acquiring an ally on the theist front is good. Well, not if the goal is proclamation of the gospel. Sure. So one of the things that a lot of Christians are encountering today is that there are, um, not only are there questions about, um, if you will, kind of the supernatural aspects of our faith, but in many respects, kind of the, the moral convictions of Christians. I think that's the big one. Yeah. So how do you, how do you navigate that? And in particular, you know, go from those conversations which people have, and again, they've got you know, deep-seated, many times personal reasons why it's an issue for them, um, to move from that to gospel, where it's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're talking about some of those, the moral and, if you will, the law-based um, aspects of our faith, which are important as well, but ultimately you're trying to get it to the gospel. So, I don't know, any yeah. any counsel for Christians that are wrestling with that? Somebody told me, uh, uh, who was attending here, that one of the most common things they're hearing is, uh, you know, like, when you shift the conversation to Christ and that his death and resurrection is for the forgiveness of sins. It's not even just to prove he's God. I think that's important, too. Death and resurrection is for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, they will hear, oh, I'm not a sinner, or sort of reject the basic laws in the uh, in the Bible that would suggest that you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also something that uh, tends to make um, people uncomfortable. But I say, well, you should target uh, some of the laws that are convicting them. Mm. They not be, may not be exact uh, duplicates of the divine law, but that person probably believes they're destroying their human existence is destroying the climate. Oh, interesting. Um, you should, uh, you know, when they say, I don't have sins that need forgiving, you should ask them, well, are you contributing to the death of this planet? Wow. Um, you know, uh, so you should ask them. Boom, if, gotcha. Yeah, boom, gotcha. Are you, are you, you know, are you part of a, a culture and a country and a, and a rea- reality that is systematically racist? Um, you know, have you contributed to that in your life? Uh, you seem to be doing things that are attempting to atone for, for those things. Um, you know, I, I think being willing to work with things that Christians would go, that's not the God's law. And you go, well, they, they are laws in nature and in the world that are convicting this person's conscience that at a base level make them believe uh, that they're a sinner. And there are ways to then draw that that guilt actually comes from pieces of the divine law. Hmm. Um, you know, thou shall not murder being sort of a prime one here that uh, hate for your neighbor in your heart is 
murder or that the destruction of the planet goes against uh, sort of God's uh, promise and gift to us to be stewards of the creation so that they've uh, recognized they're violating the the order and the meaning in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some sort of guilt there. Um, so everybody feels guilty for something mm-hmm. um, and sort of you have to you have to work with your audience. And again, my hope isn't that you then have, that you're converting somebody who then never uh, learns what it means to be guilty of the law in all of its parts. Right. Right. Um, but that you, in order to, in order to preach to them, sort of break down that barrier that, uh, that they are guilty. Caleb, hmm. hmm. um, we always end our podcast with a question about pointing us in a direction of resources. Now, you are the director of podcasts for 1517. You have about 21 podcasts? Yeah, as of today. As of today? New one dropped today. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about how you guys choose, uh, or, you know, what's this, I guess, the strategic direction you guys? You have very different types of podcasts. We do. 1517's goal on the whole is to declare and defend the good news that you are forgiven and free on account of Christ alone. Uh, the podcasts sort of play an integral piece in sort of the how do you declare and uh, defend this, which is um, through as many online resources as possible to as many people as possible. So um, podcasts has been a huge part of that. Uh, I started the podcast network just over five years ago. We took a bunch of shows that 1517 was sponsoring. So uh, Thinking Fellows was a show we were sponsoring. Chad's podcast, 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, was a show we were sponsoring. We were sponsoring 30 Minutes in the New Testament. Uh, and so uh, then I said, you know what, we really need to bring these together in a cohesive way where it's clear that they are part of 1517. They're not just sort of getting sponsored by. And uh, so we did that, and we've just been slowly adding shows uh, ever since. Started with five on the network, and then now we're at 21. Uh, the the way we do uh, podcasts is we tend to pick hosts who are people that we sort of trust to stay on mission with that declare and defend the good news that you're forgiven and free. Um, you know, eat, not each show is always uh, a particular type of proclamation or a particular defense of the faith, but I think uh, it ultimately culminate in doing that. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, I'll be going on later this week to talk about how I think the way we do catechesis is essential to being prepared to defend the Christian faith. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how in order to, uh, to survive some of these encounters where the faith is attacked, you need to know what's in your Bible. You need to know the content of your Bible because there's some shocking uh, and horrifying material in there. And um, unbelievers uh, who want to attack your faith are going to try to leverage that. Or maybe even people who are justifying their own unbelief are going to try to leverage that. And so that's where things like 40 Minutes in the Old Testament and uh, some of the more biblical shows we do are extremely important. We have another one called Field Guide to the Bible that does this too, which teaches um, these sort of essential Bible stories for people who haven't uh, heard them before. And uh, even though it is for sort of those new to the faith or those unfamiliar, it doesn't really pull any punches about what's in those stories either. And so we just have an approach uh, like that that culminates um, in that. Uh, I work with uh, p- people who pitch ideas uh, to us. I get 
I sometimes get more, depends on the month, sometimes we get more pitches than I can sort of uh, respond to. Other times it's, um, hey, I've been doing this podcast for three years, will you guys uh, put us on the network? And, and ultimately, some of it has to be an openness to advice. People like listening to shorter content than longer content, and podcasters like recording longer content than <laughs> shorter content. Uh, and so there's some some balance there. So, But our strategy is to is to produce content that people would like to listen to. We always keep our shows completely free and ad-free, so one of our strategies is to have the entire backlog of episodes be free and downloadable into perpetuity. Um, it means that 1517 is sort of in the position where fundraising is the only way that we monetize the podcast and support them financially and allow the network to thrive and grow, which is a difficult strategy in the podcasting space. Mm -hmm. uh, ads are where most of the money's at, and if you're not doing ads, or maybe in addition to ads, you are locking episodes, say, after 15 behind a paywall or mm -hmm. something like that um, in order to get support for it. That's probably the most common one on Christian podcasts that need to monetize mm -hmm. is, is that. Um, but 1517 takes this approach that uh, the gospel is absolutely invaluable and needs to be heard by as many people as possible and so we try to try to support shows that we think are going to be able to generate uh, enough interest and enough support that they can be self-sustaining without ads and, and without barrier paywall barriers and things like that so that's sort of a big part of the show and and just uh know knowing who our hosts are and having had conversations with them before seeing their writing and speaking and stuff like that just Knowing that they're sort of on brand as far as that proclamation message is is the real thing, so that we're we're working with people who we can we can trust to do that. Cool. This has been an awesome conversation, Caleb. Thanks so much for taking the time, even on short notice. Uh, it's been great having you around the campfire. Yeah, I'm I'm super thrilled to uh, be here. Thank you for having me at Arcadia. Thanks, Caleb. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Campfire Conversations. Make sure to subscribe to hear future episodes. Visit camp-arcadia.com for more information or find us on Facebook. We'll see you back at the campfire.